It's Sunday, April 14th, and you're listening to the West Block Podcast. Every single uh, person who comes to Canada gets the full uh, treatment within our asylum system. Will the Prime Minister stop talking out of both sides of his mouth and withdraw this legislation? What Canadians are buying from an illegal uh, dealer is, is, is a product that is unregulated, untested, often unsafe. Our government is absolutely focused on helping all uh, Albertans come through this recession. But I'll certainly be working to end the Trudeau-Notley alliance. We have a climate plan that works with everyone. Everyday essentials will become more expensive this year thanks to the Trudeau carbon tax. Asylum shopping. The federal government wants to stop people from seeking refuge here if they've already applied for asylum elsewhere. Critics say it'll deny the most vulnerable people the hearing to which they're entitled. The aim is to combat a big increase in asylum seekers coming from the U.S. So, will it work and is it right? Joining us now, Bill Blair, the Minister for Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction. Thank you for being here. Um, 40,000 irregular plus uh, irregular asylum seekers crossing the border, places that are not at the border points. You can see that you've got a border issue to deal with, but in an election year, it seems to be an election issue as well. What is this new law going to achieve, in your view? Well, first of all, we've been doing a great deal of work. You know, Canada's uh, a refugee uh, determination system is, is predicated on two very important principles, fairness and compassion. And Canadians expect us to, to up, up, uphold a system that is efficient and, and well-managed but also one that respects the rule of law. And, and so we've been working very hard over the past several months to encourage people not to cross irregularly, but if, if they are seeking asylum, to come to a regular point of entry. And we've achieved a fair, fairly significant level of success uh, year-to-date, year-over-year comparisons. It's down about 47 percent. And so that, we've, we've achieved some level of progress in that. Um, but we've, we've also, in the budget 2019, made very significant investments in, in creating a more efficient system so that people can have a determination of their eligibility um, earlier so that they can get on with their lives. And, and for those who perhaps got in the wrong line, who are seeking rather to Im immigrate to Canada, there's a right way to do that, and it's not through the refugee protection system. And so we're also encouraging people to, to make their applications for immigration appropriately. And for those in, uh, who, for example, have already arrived in a safe country. And, and have made an application. Um, that, the, 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 the principle of asylum primacy is that you make your application for asylum at the first safe place at which you arrive. And um, many people we have found have, have been in the United States, sometimes for one, even up to five years, have established themselves there, made an application for asylum, even have had children in the U.S., and then they've chosen to come to Canada in a regular fashion to make an application here. And what we want to do is, is, is discourage that and encourage them to stay in the first safe place that they've arrived. Um, and, 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 and to pursue their application in that place. And I want to ask you about that being whether it's as safe a place as it always was, the United States, but first, whether or not this is the right way to go about it, because the Supreme Court years ago said that asylum seekers are entitled to a hearing, not just an and, interview. And they'll get a hearing, but, and, and, but what, they, what they'll Will get they all is, get a hearing? What they'll get is access. Before, if, if someone has come in who, quite frankly, is not entitled to uh, asylum in this country, and there are a number of reasons how that determination can be made, but if someone comes in and they're still subject, before we would remove them from Canada, they get full access to what is called a pre-removal risk assessment. That's a hearing with a lawyer. The determination of that assessment is also subject to judicial review, it can be appealed. And if any individual, regardless of how they've come into the country, 
um, if, if, if they are deemed to be at risk, they will be protected. We're not going to send people back into a dangerous situation. They'll, they'll receive the protection of Canada, but we want to encourage people to get in the right line, to use uh, the, both the immigration and the asylum application process appropriately. I think we have an obligation to those who truly are in need of, 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 of protection. Some, some may not be getting, though, the kind of immigration and refugee board hearing that was envisioned and has been in use up to now. Some will get something that is something less than that. And the reason is, why is that happening? Is well, it happening because of the changes in the U.S.? And the U.S. has become, under the Trump administration, more hardline towards asylum seekers. So, of course, they're coming here. They're coming here because they know they're not going to get a fair deal down there. Well, first of all, I believe, and the UNHCR believes, that the United States remains a safe third country, and literally tens of thousands of people seeking refuge in the United States believe it as well. Um, but what we, we've had in, under the Safe Third Country Agreement, if, if a person comes from the United States, a safe country, and, and, and seeks uh, asylum in Canada, they, they, they are turned back if they cross it regularly. But over the past two years, we've seen a phenomenon where people are choosing to avoid um, that rule and, and, and crossing irregularly, where they are ex exempt from the requirement that they seek asylum in the first place, the first safe place um, that, that they've landed. And, and so we want to make sure that there is no incentive or advantage to cross irregularly. We want to encourage people to follow the rules, to, to enter the country um, at, a, at a regular point of entry. We also want to make sure that for those who truly are in need of our protection, that the system is fair and efficient for them, and that they, they have timely access to a determination of their eligibility. And quite frankly, if there are many people in that queue and in that backlog um, who, who are seeking asylum but who, frankly, are not in need of our protection, it, it actually disadvantages those who truly are. And so we're working very hard to make sure that our system is always fair and always compassionate. And when people come to this country who are fleeing war and persecution, we want to make sure that Canada is always able to protect those individuals and help them make a life in Canada uh, that will with, will benefit both them and this country. And for those who choose to immigrate, there's a right way to do yeah, that. Yeah. Well, we have a great immigration system, and we would encourage people to make that application to our immigration system and come in through the right way. The, the reality is some will continue to come across the border irregularly, and I guess you will be facing a challenge, maybe well, a legal challenge, as we go forward. But let me leave that for the moment, because I want to ask you also about cannabis. This is the hat you were wearing, uh, much more so uh, until the law was developed to, do, to make it a legal product in this country. Country, but legal sales have fallen far short of expectations. What's the problem? Well, it depends on your expectations. Quite frankly, what we did is we lifted the criminal prohibition yeah. to create an opportunity where we could robustly re regulate every aspect of production, distribution, and consumption of, of, of this substance in our country. And the federal government is, is regulating and overseeing a licensed production system where companies are licensed to produce. They're overseen and inspected by Health Canada to ensure that Canadians can have access to a, a product of known potent and purity. The provinces and territories have had responsibility to build out a retail framework and mm -hmm. to regulate that retail framework. Some of them have made very quick progress. Others are a little bit slower in that progress, and, and certainly they've experienced because it's a new market. It's a very new experience, and, and organized crime wasn't sharing their sales data with us. And so the provinces have, and, and, the, and the LPs, have been working on how to establish appropriate re, uh, supply chains for their consumers. And, and it's a process, not an event. They're learning, and they're growing, and, and they're, they're making real progress. And, and quite frankly, so far this year, it's been determined about 20% of adult Canadian consumers are actually consuming from the, the legal regulated uh, market. 
you know, that's billions of dollars that organized yeah. crime is not making. And, and I'm, I remain confident that as that new retail environment is built out by the provinces, as Ontario gets more stores opened and consumers have access to a product of competitive price and quality and choice, that they'll make the legal and socially responsible choice and the healthier choice. And so we're very confident that, you know, as we make that progress, we'll displace that illicit market and we'll achieve our public policy goal, goals of protecting the health of Canadians and making our communities safer. Well, the black market is probably getting a bit more of a go of it than they might have anticipated themselves because of the difference in prices that the man on the street is finding. But uh, for the moment, uh, let's see if it, uh, as you say, it sorts itself out as we go forward. I, we, and we're out of time, but, but uh, Bill Blair, thank you. Thank you, Eric. Historically, Alberta has the most uniform, homogenous voting pattern in Canadian history. From the small-c Conservative social credit governments starting in 1935, followed by the Progressive Conservatives from 1971 onward, which is why that 2015 NDP victory was so stunning. Now, here's the electoral map from as recently as 2008. And this is what we saw for decades. Tory dominance, provincially and federally. Now, there was some opposition in Edmonton and in Calgary, but otherwise it was a sea of blue. Now, by 2012, the Conservatives still won a majority, but the alternative Conservative Party, Wild Rose, established a big footprint, mostly in southern and central Alberta. Meantime, the NDP was gaining on the left in Edmonton as the Liberals were beginning to fade. Now, when the two Conservative parties split their vote so evenly in 2015, look what happened in the two big cities. The NDP ran amok. And so for the first time in 85 years, no Conservative Party got above 30%. And that allowed the NDP to win with 41%, the lowest for a winning party in 85 years, going back to the United Farmers government in 1930. And so the conventional wisdom is that a united Conservative Party is going to return Alberta back to something like it looked like back in 2008. But is it that simple? Has Alberta's political complexion changed? Joining us now from Calgary is United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney. Um, Jason, thank you very much for joining us. I think that a lot here. of people, I think a lot of people believe that uh, when the, when you and your colleagues pulled all the conservative forces more or less together, that uh, that the political map would return to what it uh, always looked like, which was this ocean of blue with uh, you know a few speckles of red or orange in Edmonton and Calgary. Um, but it sounds like the race at, is is closer in some ways. What is the challenge you're finding in kind of just reimposing, you know, a conservative government in Alberta as everybody would normally expect? Well, first of all, it's not an imposition. Uh, I think the mainstream values of most Albertans tend towards a free enterprise view. Uh, this is a province that's been a magnet for risk takers, entrepreneurs, uh, people with an amazing work ethic. And that, I think, is reflected in our policy approach, which is focused on job creation through reducing the tax burden on employers, cutting red tape, restoring investor confidence, getting to a balanced budget gradually. So I think this is, uh, I'm certain, actually, that this reflects the broad mainstream values of Albertans. I'm confident that will be reflected on the the polls on Tuesday, Eric, we've had an unprecedented turnout at the advanced polls, um, uh, higher by far than in any time in history. I think that's indicative that the winds of change are in the air, and that, that's why while we're going to stay humble and work hard, we're pretty optimistic. It often is a sign of change when you have a, a high turnout. Uh, it can also be that there, that there is such a divide between the two parties. Um, why do you think that the divide is so great? You seem to be tying um, Rachel Notley to the federal liberals over pipelines. And, uh, and, and I just wonder if you think that this has been the, pl the place where you're able to sort of make the inroads and split off Alberta Albertans who have, you know, long-held grievances at times with, uh, with Ottawa. 
I think they're well-founded grievances. Eric, a recent poll by Angus Reid said half, 50% of Albertans uh, support secession right now. Uh, that, that, maybe some of that is just people blowing off steam, but beneath it is a very deep frustration and anxiety, a sense of the province under siege, like we've done everything that we're supposed to do, follow the rules, pay big taxes, contribute massively, $20 billion a year net, to the rest of the Federation, and yet everywhere we turn, we're being blocked in and pinned down. Uh, two pipelines killed uh, by Trudeau, two that are barely on life support, um, a carbon tax which is massively uh, opposed by Albertans, the tanker ban, the C-69, the No More Pipelines Act, a cap on our oil sands, all of these and other policies, and just the attitude, a premier who said that we're the embarrassing cousins no one wants to talk about, a prime minister who says he wants to phase out the oil sands. Albertans just feel like we have this Trudeau-Notley alliance has been a, a real body blow to our uh, economic potential, and that's why we're going through a jobs crisis, the, uh, just a four-year period of economic decline and stagnation. So I think folks just want change. They want someone to stand up and fight without apology for the uh, energy that we produce uh, so effectively in this province. One of the changes that, that a lot of Canadians are also looking for, though, is leadership on climate change. And that, it seems to me, we're not hearing from Conservative leaders in the country who are just wanting to slash carbon pricing, even though there are Conservatives, some of those, some of them who will say, like, carbon pricing is the best way to, you know, reduce these emissions. Um, where, where is the leadership? Are, are, people will be looking to you to be able to help lead on climate sure. change. How do you do that? So we're, we're proposing a real uh, common sense plan uh, that would be a levy on major emitters. Uh, that is uh, an incentive for them to reduce carbon intensity uh, and it will support research and development uh, for technology that shrinks carbon output that we can share with the developing world where the real problem is uh, in increasing emissions. Uh, this plan would reduce uh, uh, CO2 output by about 45 megatons. And, uh, but we, it, I make no apology for saying we're going to scrap the retail carbon tax because uh, punishing people for heating their home in a cold winter or driving to work is not a responsible environmental policy. The Premier herself cannot tell us by how much carbon emissions are being reduced by her, uh, her retail carbon tax. And even uh, you know, the fans of that approach are saying it's a small fraction of the overall reduction. So uh, I just don't think punishing people for living normal lives makes a lot of sense. And by the way, Eric, the, the, the so-called free market carbon tax advocates say that it will be put in place of regulations. All we've seen, though, is additional regulations. They said it was supposed to be revenue neutral. In Alberta, it wasn't. It was just an additional tax grab. They said it's supposed to be progressive with rebates, but the NDP here wants to raise the carbon tax by 67 percent with no increase in, in rebates, meaning, meaning it becomes a, a regressive tax on the poor heating their homes. So I make no apology for saying we'll scrap that. Let me ask you about this, because one of the places you've been challenged hard uh, during this campaign is defending your party that still seems to attract a certain uh, homophobic <coughs> elements. Um, you've evolved over time. You've said that. Uh, you still have, for example, running for you an MLA, Mark Smith, who has said some things that were, uh, you know, anti-homosexual. Uh, uh, so these are issues that you're still facing. How do you convince, I guess, an increasingly younger, modern, you know, a younger um, demographic that, uh, that you are a modern leader for the future? 
In the case of that candidate, you know, he actually, since the, he made uh, offensive comments in private life, for which he has unequivocally apologized, he voted for the inclusion of transgender rights in the Alberta Human, Human Rights Code and has supported gay-straight alliances. So, um, and has said, as far as I can see, in his elected public life, nothing that was offensive towards people. Ours is a broad coalition. We have the largest provincial political party in Canada, 160,000 members. It reflects the diversity of today's Alberta. Over a quarter of our candidates come from visible minority, uh, new Canadian, refugee, Aboriginal uh, backgrounds. Uh, we do reflect the diversity of the province. We are committed to protecting the rights of people and human dignity. And that's why I think we have the support of something like half of Albertans. All right, Jason Kenney, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. Joining us now in Edmonton, Jared Wesley, a political science professor from the University of Alberta, and in Calgary, journalist Jen Gerson. So, Jared, I'll start with you. What are the polls suggesting to us right now will happen on Tuesday, and are they to be believed? Well, the polls are pointing to uh, Calgary being the major battleground in this election, which, uh, which is what we knew going in. Uh, most polls suggest the UCP has anywhere between a five-point and a 20-point lead, depending on the methodology and the, the structure of the, of the, of the polls. So, um, but it, it definitely does suggest the NDP has a pretty uh, steep hill to climb in the last week of the campaign in, in order to get back in it. There was an expectation, uh, Jen, that, uh, that when we saw the United, you know, the Conservatives come together in a united way, it would be something like we, we have seen in the past in the way that political map would unfold. Do you see that happening? And, and is, it, you know, is it more competitive than you might have expected? I don't like to make predictions about Alberta because if there's one thing that um, I've learned after being here for 10 years and covering politics for 10 years, it's that the idea that Alberta is a politically homogenous place is mostly a stereotype. Um, there's a lot more going on between underneath the surface of politics here than, than, than the uh, you know, voting results will necessarily show you. Um, I'm not surprised that this is a competitive election. I think most of the polls, especially the ones showing a very, very strong UCP lead, are kind of dodgy, to be blunt. Um, I think that we're going into election day with the UCP showing a, a small lead. But the trend lines are favoring the NDP. Um, I still think the smart money is probably on a UCP win, but the idea that there's going to be some kind of UCP supermajority similar to what we saw back in the 70s and 80s, I think that's pretty suspect. Uh, Jared, uh, tackle, I guess, Rachel Notley for us, first of all. Are there, are there reasons why she is doing maybe better than some might have expected, uh, and other reasons that are holding her back? Well, for about three years now, public opinion polls and surveys have shown that Notley is running about 10 to 15, even 20 points ahead of her party in terms of popularity. So the Rachel brand itself uh, is, is helping her party in a way that uh, it's not happening on the other side with the UCP, where Jason Kenney's running well behind his party. I think part of her challenge uh, is that she is a New Democratic uh, Premier in, in a province that historically has, has not favored that party. The brand itself is not very strong. And even if she tries to defend her record on, on the economy, polls consistently show that Albertans trust Conservative uh, leaders and, and parties with things like uh, economic growth, jobs pipelines, intergovernmental relations, and so on. And the UCP has been very uh, effective this time around in, in turning this election into a question about the economy and jobs. Uh, Jen, why don't you pick up on uh, Rachel Notley, first of all, I guess, before we turn directly to, to Jason Kenney, just, um, you know, what she is uh, achieving and, uh, and the challenge that she faces still. Rachel Notley has been unable to successfully get a pipeline in the ground um, 
with the cooperation of the federal government. And there is no question that that is going to be the deciding factor for probably a majority of voters in this province. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, you have the NDP creating a narrative around the UCP's social conservative um, base, uh, and, and, you know, I think of the quote-unquote bozo eruptions that we've seen, numerous dozens of candidates and nominees who have been kicked out of the party because of made, some of the comments they've made publicly or in private um, around racism, homophobia, those sorts of issues. I, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that that hasn't had a serious negative um, impact on the UCP and its ability to form a majority government. Um, one of the stereotypes of Alberta is that it's a uniformly soci socially conservative place, and I think that if you, you know, look at any kind of if you look at Alberta with any kind of sophistication, you'd see that very quickly that's not really true. And I think there's a lot of backlash to some of the overt social conservatism of some of the UCP candidates. So, I mean, those are the two competing forces. As Jen was talking about, it has been one of the challenges, it sounds like, for Jason Kenney has been defending a party that is still attractive to some with sort of a homophobic elements in it. Um, is that hurting him, or does it actually shore up in any way with, with because uh, sometimes we have a, a way of reading these things from, from our urban centers far away, mm -hmm. seeing that, uh, that he might be in some trouble, but, but maybe not. Right, well, I think that uh, the Conservatives, rather than even talking about those types of issues, moral moralism or, or social issues or social justice issues, including those involving the LGBTQ community, instead of talking about those, the Conservatives have pivoted uh, time and time again uh, to talking about jobs in the economy. At one point, as Jen mentioned, there have been so many uh, candidate scandals involved with that party. They actually have a template apology letter that, in the bottom, the bottom of it has boilerplate language saying, "Now let's get back to the issues that Albertans really care about: jobs and the economy." So, I mean, as a student of uh, political campaigning, we know that uh, political parties try to prime the the electorate by trying to set the agenda with a particular set of issues, and this campaign it's been uh, you know almost a master class by the UCP in pivoting back to talk about those issues and, and Albertans particularly those in southern Alberta and Calgary I think you'll see very different results here in Edmonton but southern Alberta they've really bought into that message that the ballot question is all about jobs in the economy and not about these moral issues. So Jen are, are the demographics changing in, uh, in Alberta enough that it can you, if not in this election you're seeing that there is a, a shift at all because it's hard. It's not just that there's a conservatism. There's also a very, you know a very powerful, strong oil economy in Alberta, and so you don't you don't hear the same kind of debate going on within within Alberta that you might in other places uh, over climate change or what to do about you know pipelines. Well, I mean, I think that we get back to the the stereotype of Alberta versus the myth of Alberta, and I mean, I would think I would disagree with your previous guest. The idea that like moral issues aren't an issue or aren't at play in in some of the inner city the ridings the UCP needs to win. Uh, I think that that's just incorrect. Um, I think that those issues are very much in play in urban centers like Calgary and, and Edmonton, and in areas where they're perhaps less in play, the UCP is almost certain to win anyway. Um, demographics, I mean, it's a, it's a question to me about how much the demographics of Alberta has shifted. As I mean, this is a, a long-standing debate in Alberta that somehow because we have younger people, uh, a fairly educated population, particularly in um, the white job, white-collar jobs in the um, oil and gas sector, that as a result, you know, you, you would, you'd expect to see a more left-leaning electorate. Um, what we have tended to see is that the types of left-leaning, more progressive voters or centrist voters 
that fight tends to happen within the big tent conservative parties as opposed to outside the big tent conservative mm -hmm. parties. Mm. And that has to do with more, more to do with sort of regional grievances and, re and regional politics than it does about than it does to say that there are no progressive voters here. Well, well thank you for that. Uh, Jen Gerst and Jared Wesley, we're out of time, but uh, I can tell you that I know you'll be watching it closely, but I think many across the country are watching the, uh, the Alberta election very closely on Tuesday. Thanks for uh, talking to us today. You bet. Thank you. If United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney wins the election in Alberta on Tuesday, he promises to lower the industrial emitter penalty and scrap a cap on oil sands emissions. He would join four other provinces with Conservative governments that have opted out of carbon pricing. This, while study after study says the impacts of climate change are coming faster than even the experts expected. But uh, not all Conservatives want less action. Mark Cameron, a former policy advisor to Stephen Harper, is now the executive director of Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. One uh, Conservative government after another is fighting carbon pricing, uh, such as a gasoline tax increase. You're a Conservative. What is it you're getting that some of your maybe former colleagues are that you think are not getting? Well, I think it's basic market economics, that if you want less of something, you put a higher price on it. If you want more of something, you, you lower the price. And, and so if we want less carbon emissions, we increase the price of carbon emissions and we, and we reduce what we, taxes on what we want more of, like labor and savings. So, I mean, you're not alone. I mean, Preston Manning, Jim Dinning, some very big names in the conservative movement and conservative party uh, over time have, uh, have said that they are on board for, for more action. It sounds like a, a pretty simple argument to be made. Um, Recent reports have said all this, all this is happening with climate change. I'm being drawn to it. It's hard not sure. to get involved with the science of it and say, my gosh, the NASA and NOAA and the UN and all of these reports. Yeah. Are you on side with all of those findings? Like, there's nothing about that that surprises you? No, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that uh, climate change is happening and that it's primarily human-caused. Uh, and I think the consensus on that is, is overwhelming. And, you know, now we're seeing evidence that it's happening perhaps even faster than we thought it was going to happen. Uh, I, I think the good news is that the mainstream conservative parties, whether it's Andrew Scheer or Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, none of them have said that they deny the science of climate change. They've, they've said that they want to reduce emissions, but they're not opting for the, the option that's probably the, the cheapest free market op way to reduce emissions. So what are they doing? Because it sounds, I mean, when you see somebody at, in this day, it looks like the 1990s when Andrew Scheer stands in front of a gas tank and, and talks about, we're going to, first thing I'll do is I'm going to scrap this, uh, this carbon tax. That doesn't seem to be recognizing sort of the argument that is being made on the other side that is, it's, it's done, that sure. we've got to change. Well, any tax that's a direct tax on consumers, a visible tax like the HST is, is very unpopular, even though economists will say that's actually the best, the best kind of tax to have. So you've got, to, you've, got, you've got to disconnect between the politics and the economics of it. Uh, I mean, the, the Ontario government, the Saskatchewan government, the UCP platform in Alberta, they all have industrial carbon pricing, so they've accepted the idea of putting a carbon price on large industrial emitters, although some of them aren't calling it a carbon price. It's when you put a price on consumers that, that, that they're really the political, the political difficulty. So I guess the question is, is there, are there alternative methods that, that can you know, achieve reductions? And there are, but they tend to all be more expensive than a simple carbon price. Such as cap and trade. I mean, is that because uh, I'm looking now for right. because I think you know you you want um, uh, the, the leadership of the country and, it, and the next leader of this country could be Andrew Scheer, a conservative. You want him to have something to that will actually tackle this. I think it might actually be good for him politically if he has something that is 
seen uh, by environmentalists as a real plan, what is there that, that he could do if not carbon pricing of the I mean, type? The, the cap and trade is really another variation of carbon pricing, mm -hmm. so, so I don't really think that's an alternative that many of them would look to. Uh, there are regulatory approaches, and a number of conservative governments have, you know, have brought in regulations. Stephen Harper brought in regulations on coal, increased the fuel economy standards. So there are things you can do on that side, uh, increasing the, the fuel economy standards for cars or having a, a low-carbon fuel standard that the federal government is talking about. Uh, which I think the Ontario plan actually incorporates the federal low-carbon fuel standard as part of their plan, uh, putting higher standards on buildings, uh, requiring a certain percentage of renewable gas and natural gas. So there are a number of things you can do, but you know, regulatory approaches tend to, in the end, be more expensive than, than a simple price mechanism. You, you said that uh, there's a disconnect between the politics, maybe, and the policies of, of going forward. Yeah. Do do you have a sense that the public is getting more is connecting those more like that there that there is um, because of these reports that we keep hearing that they will want and expect something more that maybe conservatives aren't hearing that message yet because they seem to be um, so far they think they're succeeding with just a message which is scrap this stuff and I'll get your yeah. vote. I, look, I think the public consensus on climate change is happening. It's real. People have to do something about it. Is getting stronger. Uh, I think the fight on carbon pricing has, has muddied the waters. So there are a lot of people say, "Well, you know, I would like to do something about climate about climate change, but I don't think a price a tax on gasoline is the way to go." Uh, unfortunately, that probably is the way to go from an economic point of view, or at least part of the way to go. Uh, but you know, if there are going to be alternatives, I think it's imperative that whether it's the the Ford government or Andrew Scheer, they really have to put plans forward that uh, that actually can show where they're going to achieve reductions. Uh, so so far, they're kind of halfway there, but they haven't really put forward comprehensive plans that could actually get anywhere near the 30 percent reduction target that Stephen Harper actually implemented. Again, you you know you were a policy advisor. Um, you know that he's already kind of in, in a sense backed himself into a corner that, that Andrew Scheer cannot go forward with the with the carbon tax as it is. Uh, what is he waiting for? Since the Liberals are also hitting back, saying, "Where's your plan? Where's your plan?" Well, I think they they don't want to create a target. They right now they see the Liberals uh, creating a lot of difficulties for themselves politically, and I think and they think they're on a, a winning issue on, on the carbon tax, so they don't want to create a, a plan of their own that creates a target. Uh, I suspect they will have something either before their platform or in their platform, but I, you know, it seems that they want to come out later rather than sooner and not, and not put, a, put a target on their backs. Do you expect it will be something that you and people that, are, that have looked at this, thing, this subject closely will, will say, well, that, that can work? Is there something workable I, yeah, there? I, I hope so. I hope that, uh, that Andrew Scheer and other conservative governments across the country will come up with plans that are responsible and it will be in line with the, the 30 percent reduction targets. Right now, you know, based on what we saw from Ontario last fall, I'm not sure that they will actually be adequate plans, uh, and I, I think it's important that you know that their plans are assessed pretty rigorously. I mean, I think right now Ontario's plan, they've got the industrial emitters covered, but that's only about 25 percent of the game. Uh, they're they're really doing they're really doing very little on the other 75 percent of the emissions in Ontario. You can go full bore because you're all in on this. But if you were in your old job and you were advising Andrew Scheer right now, what would be, given where he is, where he's positioned himself, and believing what you believe, what would be your advice to him? Well, I think uh, they should reaffirm the, the uh, Paris reduction targets, the 30 percent targets. I know that they voted for that in the House last year, but they've been a little more ambiguous as to whether they're going to stick to that uh, lately. Uh, I think they should keep the large, large emitter system, the output-based pricing system that the federal government has had uh, as part of its carbon pricing system. 
uh, I think that is pretty much along the lines of what Ontario and Saskatchewan and the UCP are intending to do as well. Uh, so, so there's a kind of consensus on that. And then for the other areas, whether it's uh, automobile emissions or building emissions, they're going to have to come up with some kind of regulations that will actually have to be pretty tough and biting, and that's that's where I think there's yeah. going to be the difficulty. Yeah, that, I mean, the that you've got to fold consumers in on this yeah. as well, the average consumers. Uh, Mark Cameron, really great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Eric. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to the West Block Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm Eric Sorensen.